What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. The Wisdom of Father Brown by G.K. Chesterton Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 5 The Mistake of the Machine Flambeau and his friend the priest were sitting in the temple gardens about sunset, and their neighbourhood or some such accidental influence had turned their talk to matters of legal process. From the problem of the licence in cross-examination, their talk strayed to Roman and medieval torture, to the examining magistrate in France, and the third degree in America. "'I've been reading,' said Flambeau, "'of this new psychometric method they talk about so much, especially in America. You know what I mean. They put a pulsometer on a man's wrist, and judge by how his heart goes at the pronunciation of certain words. What do you think of it? I think it's very interesting, replied Father Brown. It reminds me of that interesting idea in the Dark Ages that blood would flow from a corpse if the murderer touched it. Do you really mean, demanded his friend, that you think the two methods are equally valuable? I think them equally value less, replied Brown. Blood flows, fast or slow, in dead folk or living, for so many more million reasons than we can ever know. Blood will have to flow very funnily, blood will have to flow up the Matterhorn, before I will take it as a sign that I am to shed it. The method, remarked the other, has been guaranteed by some of the greatest American men of science. What sentimentalists men of science are, exclaimed Father Brown, and how much more sentimental must American men of science be? Who but a Yankee would think of proving anything from heartthrobs? Why, they must be as sentimental as a man who thinks a woman is in love with him if she blushes. That's a test from the circulation of the blood, discovered by the immortal Harvey, and a jolly rotten test, too. But surely, insisted Flambeau, it might point pretty straight at something or other. There's a disadvantage in a stick pointing straight, answered the other. What is it? Why, the other end of the stick always points the opposite way. It depends whether you get hold of the stick by the right end. I saw the thing done once, and I've never believed in it since. And he proceeded to tell the story of his disillusionment. It happened nearly twenty years before, when he was chaplain to his co-religionists in a prison in Chicago, where the Irish population displayed a capacity both for crime and penitence which kept him tolerably busy. The official second-in-command under the governor was an ex-detective named Greywood Usher, a cadaverous, carefully spoken Yankee philosopher, occasionally varying a very rigid visage with an odd, apologetic grimace. He liked Father Brown in a slightly patronising way, and Father Brown liked him, though he heartily disliked his theories. His theories were extremely complicated and were held with extreme simplicity. 
One evening he had sent for the priest, who, according to his custom, took a seat in silence at a table piled and littered with papers, and waited. The official selected from the papers a scrap of newspaper cutting, which he handed across to the cleric, who read it gravely. It appeared to be an extract from one of the pinkest of American society papers, and ran as follows. Society's brightest widower is once more on the freak dinner stunt. All our exclusive citizens will recall the perambulator parade dinner, in which last trick Todd, at his palatial home at Pilgrim's Pond, caused so many of our prominent debutants to look even younger than their years. Equally elegant and more miscellaneous and large-hearted in social outlook was last trick's show the year previous, the popular Cannibal Crush Lunch, at which the confections handed round were sarcastically moulded in the forms of human arms and legs, and during which more than one of our gayest mental gymnasts was heard offering to eat his partner. The witticism which will inspire this evening is as yet in Mr. Todd's pretty reticent intellect, or locked in the jewelled bosoms of our city's gayest leaders. But there is talk of a pretty parody of the simple manners and customs at the other end of society's scale. This will be all the more telling, as hospitable Todd is entertaining in Lord Falconroy, the famous traveller, a true-blooded aristocrat, fresh from England's oak groves. Lord Falconroy's travels began before his ancient feudal title was resurrected. He was in the Republic in his youth, and fashion murmurs a sly reason for his return. Miss Etta Todd is one of our deep-souled New Yorkers, and comes into an income of nearly twelve hundred million dollars. Well, asked Usher, does that interest you? My words rather fail me, answered Father Brown. I cannot think at this moment of anything in this world that would interest me less. And unless the just anger of the Republic is at last going to electrocute journalists for writing like that, I don't quite see why it should interest you either. Ah, said Mr. Usher dryly, and handing across another scrap of newspaper, well, does that interest you? The paragraph was headed, Savage Murder of a Warder convict escapes, and ran. Just before dawn this morning, a shout for help was heard in the convict settlement at Sequa, in this state. The authorities, hurrying in the direction of the cry, found the corpse of the warder who patrols the top of the north wall of the prison, the steepest and most difficult exit, for which one man has always been found sufficient. The unfortunate officer had, however, been hurled from the high wall, his brains beaten out as with a club, and his gun was missing. Further inquiries show that one of the cells was empty. It had been occupied by a rather sullen ruffian giving his name as Oscar Rian. He was only temporarily detained for some comparatively trivial assault, but he gave everyone the impression of a man with a black past and a dangerous future. Finally, when daylight had fully revealed the scene of murder, it was found that he had written on the wall above the body a fragmentary sentence, apparently with a finger dipped in blood. This was self-defence, and he had the gun. I meant no harm to him or any man but one. I am keeping the bullet for Pilgrim's Pond. Signed O.R. A man must have used most fiendish treachery 
or most savage and amazing bodily daring to have stormed such a wall in spite of an armed man. Well, the literary style is somewhat improved, admitted the priest cheerfully, but still I don't see what I can do for you. I should cut a poor figure with my short legs running about this state after an athletic assassin of that sort. I doubt whether anybody could find him. The convict settlement at Sequoia is thirty miles from here. The country between is wild and tangled enough, and the country beyond, where he will surely have the sense to go, is a perfect no-man's land, tumbling away to the prairies. He may be in any hole or up any tree. He isn't in any hole, said the Governor. He isn't up any tree. Why, how do you know? asked Father Brown, blinking. Would you like to speak to him? inquired Usher. Father Brown opened his innocent eyes wide. He's here, he exclaimed. Why, how did your men get hold of him? I got hold of him myself, drawled the American, rising and lazily stretching his lanky legs before the fire. I got hold of him with the crooked end of a walking stick. Don't look so surprised. I really did. You know I sometimes take a turn in the country lanes outside this dismal place. Well, I was walking early this evening up a steep lane with dark hedges and grey-looking ploughed fields on both sides, and a young moon was up and silvering the road. By the light of it I saw a man running across the field towards the road, running with his body bent and at a good mile-race trot. He appeared to be much exhausted, but when he came to the thick black hedge he went through it as if it were made of spider's webs or rather, for I heard the strong branches breaking and snapping like bayonets, as if he himself were made of stone. In the instant in which he appeared up against the moon, crossing the road, I slung my hooked cane at his legs, tripping him and bringing him down. Then I blew my whistle, long and loud, and our fellows came running up to secure him. It would have been rather awkward, remarked Brown, if you had found he was a popular athlete practising a mile race. He was not, said Usher grimly. We soon found out who he was, but I had guessed it with the first glint of the moon on him. You thought it was the runaway convict, observed the priest simply, because you had read in the newspaper cutting that morning that a convict had run away. I had somewhat better grounds, replied the governor coolly. I pass over the first as too simple to be emphasised. I mean that fashionable athletes do not run across ploughed fields or scratch their eyes out in bramble hedges, nor do they run all doubled up like a crouching dog. There were more decisive details to a fairly well-trained eye. The man was clad in coarse and ragged clothes, but they were something more than merely coarse and ragged. They were so ill-fitting as to be quite grotesque. Even as he appeared in black outline against the moonrise, the coat-collar in which his head was buried made him look like a hunchback, and the long loose sleeves looked as if he had no hands. It at once occurred to me that he had somehow managed to change his convict clothes for some confederate's clothes which did not fit him. Second, there was a pretty stiff wind against which he was running, so that I must have seen the streaky look of blowing hair if the hair had not been very short. Then I remembered that beyond these ploughed fields he was crossing lay Pilgrim's Pond, for which, you will remember, the convict was keeping his bullet, and I sent my walking-stick flying. A brilliant piece of rapid deduction, said Father Brown. But had he got a gun? 
As Asher stopped abruptly in his walk, the priest added apologetically, "'I've been told a bullet is not half so useful without it.' "'He had no gun,' said the other gravely, "'but that was doubtless due to some very natural mischance or change of plans. Probably the same policy that made him change the clothes made him drop the gun. He began to repent the coat he had left behind him in the blood of his victim.' "'Well, that's possible enough,' answered the priest. "'And it's hardly worth speculating on,' said Usher, turning to some other papers, "'for we know it's the man by this time.' His clerical friend asked faintly, "'But how?' And Greywood Usher threw down the newspapers and took up the two press-cuttings again. "'Well, since you are so obstinate,' he said, "'let's begin at the beginning. "'You will notice that these two cuttings have only one thing in common.' which is the mention of Pilgrim's Pond, the estate, as you know, of the millionaire Ireton Todd. You also know that he is a remarkable character, one of those that rose on stepping-stones of our dead selves to higher things, assented his companion. Yes, I know that. Petroleum, I think. Anyhow, said Usher, last trick, Todd, counts for a great deal in this rum affair. He stretched himself once more before the fire, and continued talking in his expansive radiantly explanatory style. To begin with, on the face of it, there is no mystery here at all. It is not mysterious, it is not even odd, that a jailbird should take his gun to Pilgrim's Pond. Our people aren't like the English, who will forgive a man for being rich if he throws away money on hospitals or horses. Last trick Todd has made himself big by his own considerable abilities. And there's no doubt that many of those on whom he has shown his abilities would like to show theirs on him with a shotgun. Todd might easily get dropped by some man he's never even heard of, some labourer he's locked out, or some clerk in a business he's busted. Lastrick is a man of mental endowments and a high public character, but in this country the relations of employees and employed are considerably strained. That's how the whole thing looks, supposing this Rianne made for Pilgrim's Pond to kill Todd, so it looked to me till another little discovery woke up what I have of the detective in me. When I had my prisoner safe, I picked up my cane again, and strolled down the two or three turns of country road that brought me to one of the side entrances of Todd's grounds, the one nearest to the pool or lake after which the place is named. It was some two hours ago, about seven by this time. The moon was more luminous, and I could see the long white streaks of it lying on the mysterious mere with its grey, greasy, half-liquid shores, in which they say our fathers used to make witches walk until they sank. I've forgotten the exact tale, but you know the place I mean. It lies north of Todd's house, towards the wilderness, and has two queer wrinkled trees, so dismal that they look more like huge fungoids than decent foliage. As I stood peering at this misty pool, I fancied I saw the faint figure of a man moving from the house towards it but it was all too dim and distant for me to be certain of the fact, and still less of the details. Besides, my attention was very sharply arrested by something much closer. I crouched behind the fence which ran not more than two hundred yards from one wing of the great mansion, and which was fortunately split in places as especially for the application of a cautious eye. A door had opened in the dark bulk of the left wing, and a figure appeared black against the illuminated interior a muffled figure bending forward, evidently peering out into the night. It closed the door behind it, 
and I saw it was carrying a lantern, which threw a patch of imperfect light on the dress and figure of the wearer. It seemed to be the figure of a woman, wrapped up in a ragged cloak, and evidently disguised to avoid notice. There was something very strange about the rags and the furtiveness in a person coming out of those rooms lined with gold. She took cautiously the curved garden path, which brought her within half a hundred yards of me. Then she stood up for an instant on the terrace of turf that looks towards the slimy lake, and holding her flaming lantern above her head, she deliberately swung it three times to and fro, as for a signal. As she swung it the second time, a flicker of its light fell for a moment on her own face, a face that I knew. She was unnaturally pale, and her head was bundled in her borrowed plebeian shawl, but I am certain it was Etta Todd, the millionaire's daughter. She retraced her steps in equal secrecy, and the door closed behind her again. I was about to climb the fence and follow, when I realised that the detective fever that had lured me into the adventure was rather undignified, and that, in a more authoritative capacity, I already held all the cards in my hand. I was just turning away when a new noise broke on the night. A window was thrown up in one of the upper floors, but just round the corner of the house so that I could not see it, and a voice of terrible distinctness was heard shouting across the dark garden to know where Lord Falconroy was, for he was missing from every room in the house. There was no mistaking that voice. I have heard it on many political platform or meeting of directors. It was Ayrton Todd himself. Some of the others seemed to have gone to the lower windows or onto the steps, and were calling up to him that Falconroy had gone for a stroll down to the Pilgrim's Pond an hour before, and could not be traced since. Then Todd cried, Mighty murder, and shut down the window violently, and I could hear him plunging down the stairs inside. Repossessing myself of my former and wiser purpose, I whipped out of the way of the general search that must follow, and returned here not later than eight o'clock. I now ask you to recall that little society paragraph which seemed to you so painfully lacking in interest. If the convict was not keeping the shot for Todd, as he evidently wasn't, it is most likely that he was keeping it for Lord Falconroy. And it looks as if he had delivered the goods. No more handy place to shoot a man than in the curious geological surroundings of that pool, where a body thrown down would sink through thick slime to a depth practically unknown. Let us suppose, then, that our friend with the cropped hair came to kill Falconroy and not Todd. But, as I have pointed out, there are many reasons why people in America might want to kill Todd. There is no reason why anybody in America should want to kill an English lord newly landed, except for the one reason mentioned in the pink paper, that the lord is paying his attentions to the millionaire's daughter. Our crop-haired friend despite his ill-fitting clothes, must be an aspiring lover. I know the notion will seem to you jarring and even comic, but that's because you're English. It sounds to you like saying the Archbishop of Canterbury's daughter will be married in St. George's Hanover Square to a crossing-sweeper on ticket-leave. You don't do justice to the climbing and aspiring power of our more remarkable citizens. You see a good-looking grey-haired man in evening dress, with a sort of authority about him, and you know he is a pillar of the state, and you fancy he had a father. You are in error. 
you do not realise that a comparatively few years ago he may have been in a tenement or, quite likely, in a jail. You don't allow for our national buoyancy and uplift. Many of our most influential citizens have not only risen recently, but risen comparatively late in life. Todd's daughter was fully eighteen when her father first made his pile, so there isn't really anything impossible in her having a hanger-on in low life, or even in her hanging on to him, as I think she must be doing to judge by the lantern business. If so, the hand that held the lantern may not be unconnected with the hand that held the gun. This case, sir, will make a noise. Well, said the priest patiently, and what did you do next? I reckon you'll be shocked, replied Greywood Usher, as I know you don't cotton to the march of science in these matters. I am given a good deal of discretion here, and perhaps take a little more than I am given. And I thought it was an excellent opportunity to test that psychometric machine I told you about. Now, in my opinion, that machine can't lie. No machine can lie, said Father Brown, nor can it tell the truth. It did in this case, as I'll show you, went on Usher positively. I sat the man in the ill-fitting clothes in a comfortable chair, and simply wrote words on a blackboard. And the machine simply recorded the variations of his pulse, and I simply observed his manner. The trick is to introduce some word connected with the supposed crime in a list of words connected with something quite different, yet a list in which it occurs quite naturally. Thus I wrote heron, and eagle, and owl, and when I wrote falcon, he was tremendously agitated, and when I began to make an R at the end of the word, that machine just bounded. Who else in this republic has any reason to jump at the name of a newly arrived Englishman like Falconroy, except the man who shot him? Isn't that better evidence than a lot of gabble from witnesses? It's the evidence of a reliable machine. You always forget, observed his companion, that the reliable machine always has to be worked by an unreliable machine. Why, what do you mean? asked the detective. I mean man, said Father Brown, the most unreliable machine I know of. I don't want to be rude, and I don't think you will consider man to be an offensive or inaccurate description of yourself. You say you observed his manner. But how do you know you observed it right? You say the words have to come in a natural way. But how do you know that you did it naturally? How do you know, if you come to that, that he did not observe your manner? Who is to prove that you were not tremendously agitated? There was no machine tied onto your pulse. I tell you, cried the American, in the utmost excitement, I was as cool as a cucumber. Criminals also can be as cool as cucumbers, said Brown, with a smile, and almost as cool as you. Well, this one wasn't, said Usher, throwing the papers about. Oh, you make me tired. I'm sorry, said the other. I only point out what seems a reasonable possibility. If you could tell by his manner when the word that might hang him had come, why shouldn't he tell from your manner that the word that might hang him was coming? I should ask for more than words myself before I hanged anybody. Usher smote the table and rose in a sort of angry triumph. And that, he cried, is just what I'm going to give you. I tried the machine first, just in order to test the thing in other ways afterwards. And the machine, sir, is right. He paused a moment, and resumed with less excitement. I rather want to insist, 
if it comes to that, that so far I had very little to go on except the scientific experiment. There was really nothing against the man at all. His clothes were ill-fitting, as I've said, but they were rather better, if anything, than those of the submerged class to which he evidently belonged. Moreover, under all the stains of his plunging through ploughed fields or bursting through dusty hedges, the man was comparatively clean. This might mean, of course, that he had only just broken prison, but it reminded me more of the desperate decency of the comparatively respectable poor. His demeanour was, I am bound to confess, quite in accordance with theirs. He was silent and dignified as they are. He seemed to have a big but buried grievance as they do. He professed total ignorance of the crime and the whole question, and showed nothing but a sullen impatience for something sensible that might come to take him out of his meaningless scrape. He asked me more than once if he could telephone for a lawyer who had helped him a long time ago in a trade dispute, and in every sense acted as you would expect an innocent man to act. There was nothing against him in the world except that little finger on the dial that pointed to the change of his pulse. Then, sir, the machine was on its trial, and the machine was right. By the time I came with him out of the private room into the vestibule, where all sorts of other people were awaiting examination, I think he had already more or less made up his mind to clearing things up by something like a confession. He turned to me and began to say in a low voice, Oh, I can't stick this any more, if you must know all about me. At the same instant one of the poor women sitting on the long bench stood up, screaming aloud and pointing at him with her finger. I have never in my life heard anything more demonically distinct. Her lean finger seemed to pick him out as if it were a pea-shooter. Though the word was a mere howl, every syllable was as clear as a separate stroke on a clock. Drugger Davis, she shouted. They've got Drugger Davis. Among the wretched women, mostly thieves and street-walkers, twenty faces were turned, gaping with glee and hate. If I had never heard the words, I should have known by the very shock upon his features that the so-called Oscar Rian had heard his real name. But I am not quite so ignorant, you may be surprised to hear. Drugger Davis was one of the most terrible and depraved criminals that ever baffled our police. It is certain that he had done murder more than once, long before his exploit with the warder. But he was never entirely fixed for it, curiously enough because he did it in the same manner as those milder or meaner crimes for which he was fixed pretty often. He was a handsome, well-bred-looking brute, as he still is to some extent, and he used mostly to go about with barmaids or shop-girls and do them out of their money. Very often, though, he went a good deal farther, and they were found drugged with cigarettes or chocolates, and their whole property missing. Then came one case where the girl was found dead, but deliberation could not quite be proved, and, what was more practical still, the criminal could not be found. I heard a rumour of his having reappeared somewhere in the opposite character this time, lending money instead of borrowing it but still to such poor widows as he might personally fascinate, but still with the same bad result for them. Well, there is your innocent man, and there is his innocent record. Even since then, four criminals and three warders have identified him and confirmed the story. Now what have you got to say to my poor little machine after that? Hasn't the machine done for him? Or do you prefer to say that the women and I have done for him?
"'As to what you've done for him,' replied Father Brown, rising and shaking himself in a floppy way, "'you've saved him from the electrical chair.' "'I don't think they can kill Duggar Davis on that old vague story of the poison. "'And as for the convict who killed the warder, I suppose it's obvious that you haven't got him. "'Mr. Davis is innocent of that crime, at any rate.' "'What do you mean?' demanded the other. "'Why should he be innocent of that crime?' "'Why, bless us all!' cried the small man in one of his rare moments of animation. "'Why, because he's guilty of the other crimes. "'I don't know what you people are made of. "'You seem to think that all sins are kept together in a bag. "'You talk as if a miser on Monday were always a spendthrift on Tuesday. "'You tell me that this man you have here "'spent weeks and months wheedling needy women out of small sums of money.' that he used a drug at best, and a poison at the worst, that he turned up afterwards as the lowest kind of money-lender, and cheated most poor people in the same patient and pacific style. Let it be granted, let us admit, for the sake of argument, that he did all this. If that is so, I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't storm a spiked wall against a man with a loaded gun. He didn't write on the wall with his own hand to say he had done it. He didn't stop to state that his justification was self-defence. He didn't explain that he had no quarrel with the poor warder. He didn't name the house of the rich man to which he was going with the gun. He didn't write his own initials in a man's blood. Saints alive! Can't you see the whole character is different in good and evil? Why, you don't seem to be like I am a bit. One would think you'd never had any vices of your own. The amazed American had already parted his lips in protest when the door of his private and official room was hammered and rattled in an unceremonious way to which he was totally unaccustomed. The door flew open. The moment before, Greywood Usher had been coming to the conclusion that Father Brown might possibly be mad. The moment after, he began to think he was mad himself. There burst and fell into his private room a man in the filthiest rags, with a greasy squash hat still askew on his head, and a shabby green shade shoved up from one of his eyes, both of which were glaring like tigers. The rest of his face was almost undiscoverable, being masked with a matted beard and whiskers, through which the nose could barely thrust itself, and further buried in a squalid red scarf or handkerchief. Mr. Usher prided himself on having seen most of the roughest specimens in the state, but he thought he had never seen such a baboon dressed as a scarecrow as this. But above all, he had never in all his placid scientific existence heard a man like that speak to him first. "'See here, old man Usher,' shouted the being in the red handkerchief. "'I'm getting tired. Don't you try any of your hide-and-seek on me. I don't get fooled any. Leave go of my guests, and I'll let up on the fancy clockwork.' Keep him here for a split instant, and you'll feel pretty mean. I reckon I'm not a man with no pull. The eminent usher was regarding the bellowing monster with an amazement which had dried up all other sentiments. The mere shock to his eyes had rendered his ears almost useless. At last he rang a bell with a hand of violence. While the bell was still strong and pealing, the voice of Father Brown fell soft but distinct. "'I have a suggestion to make,' he said, "'but it seems a little confusing. "'I don't know this gentleman, but, but I think I know him. "'Now, you know him, you know him quite well, "'but you don't know him, naturally. "'Sounds paradoxical, I know. 
"'I reckon the cosmos is cracked,' said Usher, and fell a-sprawl in his round office chair. "'Now see here,' vociferated the stranger, striking the table, but speaking in a voice that was all the more mysterious, because it was comparatively mild and rational, though still resounding. "'I won't let you in. I want—' "'Who in hell are you?' yelled Usher, suddenly sitting up straight. "'I think the gentleman's name is Todd.' said the priest. Then he picked up the pink slip of newspaper. "'I fear you don't read the society papers properly,' he said, and began to read out in a monotonous voice. "'Or locked in the jewelled bosoms of our city's gayest leaders, that there is talk of a petty parody of the manners and customs of the other end of society's scale. "'There's been a big slum dinner up at Pilgrim's Pond tonight, and a man, one of the guests, disappeared.' Mr. Ireton Todd is a good host, and has tracked him here, without even waiting to take off his fancy dress. What do you mean? I mean the man with comically ill-fitting clothes you saw, running across the ploughed field. Hadn't you better go and investigate him? He will be rather impatient to get back to his champagne, from which he ran away in such a hurry when the convict with the gun hove in sight. Do you seriously mean, began the official, "'Why, look here, Mr. Usher,' said Father Brown quietly, "'you said the machine couldn't make a mistake, and in one sense it didn't. "'But the other machine did, the machine that worked it. "'You assumed that the man in rags jumped at the name of Lord Falconroy, "'because he was Lord Falconroy's murderer. "'He jumped at the name of Lord Falconroy because he is Lord Falconroy.' "'Then why the blazes didn't he say so?' demanded the staring Usher. He felt his plight and recent panic were hardly patrician, replied the priest, so he tried to keep the name back at first. But he was just going to tell it you when, and Father Brown looked down at his boots, when a woman found another name for him. But you can't be so mad as to say, said Greywood Usher, very white, that Lord Falconroy was Drugger Davis. The priest looked at him very earnestly, but with a baffling and undecipherable face. "'I'm not saying anything about it,' he said. "'I leave all the rest to you. "'Your pink paper says that the title was recently revived for him. "'But those papers are very unreliable. "'It says he was in the States in youth, but the whole story seems very strange. "'Davis and Falconroy are both pretty considerable cowards, but so are lots of men. "'I would not hang a dog on my opinion about this, "'but I think,' he went on softly and reflectively, "'I think you Americans are too modest.' I think you idealise the English aristocracy, even in assuming it to be so aristocratic. You see a good-looking Englishman in evening dress, you know he's in the House of Lords, and you fancy he has a father. You don't allow for our national buoyancy and uplift. Many of our most influential noblemen have not only risen recently, but— Oh, stop it, cried Greywood Usher, wringing one lean hand in impatience against a shade of irony in the other's face. "'Don't stay talking to this lunatic,' cried Todd brutally. "'Take me to my friend.' Next morning Father Brown appeared with the same demure expression, carrying yet another piece of pink newspaper. "'I'm afraid you neglect the fashionable press, rather,' he said. "'But this cutting may interest you.' Usher read the headlines. "'Last tricks strayed revellers. Mirthful incident near Pilgrim's Pond.' The paragraph went on. A laughable occurrence took place outside Wilkinson's motor garage last night. A policeman on duty had his attention 
drawn by larrikins to a man in prison dress who was stepping with considerable coolness into the steering seat of a pretty high-toned panhard. He was accompanied by a girl wrapped in a ragged shawl. On the police interfering, the young woman threw back her shawl and all recognised millionaire Todd's daughter, who had just come from the slum-freak dinner at the pond, where all the choicest guests were in a similar déshabille. She and the gentleman, who had donned prison uniform, were going for the customary joy-ride. Under the pink slip, Mr. Usher found a strip of a later paper, headed, Astounding Escape of Millionaire's Daughter with Convict. She had arranged freak dinner, now safe in... Mr. Greenwood Usher lifted his eyes, but Father Brown was gone. End of chapter The Wisdom of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 6 The Head of Caesar There is, somewhere in Brompton or Kensington, an interminable avenue of tall houses, rich but largely empty, that looks like a terrace of tombs. The very steps up to the dark front doors seem as steep as the side of pyramids. One would hesitate to knock at the door, lest it should be opened by a mummy. But a yet more depressing feature in the grey façade is its telescopic length and changeless continuity. The pilgrim walking down it begins to think he will never come to a break or a corner. But there is one exception, a very small one, but hailed by the pilgrim almost with a shout. There is a sort of muse between two of the tall mansions, a mere slit like the crack of a door by comparison with the street, but just large enough to permit a pygmy alehouse or eating-house, still allowed by the rich to their stable-servants, to stand in the angle. There is something cheery in its very dinginess, and something free and elfin in its very insignificance. At the feet of those grey stone giants it looks like a lighted house of dwarves. Anyone passing the place during a certain autumn evening, itself almost fairy-like, might have seen a hand pull aside the red half-blind, which, along with some large white lettering, half hid the interior from the street, and a face peer out not unlike a rather innocent goblin's. It was, in fact, the face of one with the harmless human name of Brown, formerly priest of Cobhall in Essex, and now working in London. His friend, Flambeau, a semi-official investigator, was sitting opposite him and making his last notes of a case he had cleared up in the neighbourhood. They were sitting at a small table, close up to the window, when the priest pulled the curtain back and looked out. He waited till a stranger in the street had passed the window, to let the curtain fall into its place again. Then his round eyes rolled to the large white lettering on the window above his head, and then strayed to the next table, at which sat only a navvy with beer and cheese, and a young girl with red hair and a glass of milk. Then, seeing his friend put away the pocket-book, he said softly, "'If you've got ten minutes, I wish you'd follow that man with a false nose.' Flambeau looked up in surprise. 
but the girl with the red hair also looked up, and with something that was stronger than astonishment. She was simply and even loosely dressed in light brown sacking stuff, but she was a lady, and even, on a second glance, a rather needlessly haughty one. "'The man with a false nose,' repeated Flambeau. "'Who's he?' "'I haven't a notion,' asked Father Brown. "'I want you to find out. I ask it as a favour. He went down there, and he jerked his thumb over his shoulder in one of his undistinguished gestures. "'And can't have passed three lamp-posts yet. I only want to know the direction.' Flambeau gazed at his friend for some time, with an expression between perplexity and amusement, and then, rising from the table, squeezed his huge form out of the little door of the dwarf tavern, and melted into the twilight. Father Brown took a small book out of his pocket and began to read steadily. He betrayed no consciousness of the fact that the red-haired lady had left her own table and sat down opposite him. At last she leaned over and said in a low, strong voice, "'Why do you say that? How do you know it's false?' He lifted his rather heavy eyelids, which fluttered in considerable embarrassment. Then his dubious eye roamed again to the white lettering on the glass front of the public house. The young woman's eyes followed his and rested there also, but in pure puzzled them. "'No,' said Father Brown, answering her thoughts. "'It doesn't say cellar, like the thing in the Psalms. I read it like that myself when I was wool-gathering just now. It says ales.' "'Well,' inquired the staring young lady, "'what does it matter what it says?' His ruminating eye moved to the girl's light canvas sleeve, round the wrist of which ran a very slight thread of artistic pattern, just enough to distinguish it from a working dress of a common woman and make it more like the working dress of a lady art student. He seemed to find much food for thought in this, but his reply was very slow and hesitant. "'You see, madam,' he said, "'from the outside the place looks, well, it is a perfectly decent place, but ladies like you don't, don't generally think so. They never go into such places from choice, except—well,' she repeated, "'except an unfortunate few who don't go in to drink milk.' "'You are a most singular person,' said the young lady. What is your object in all this? Not to trouble you about it, he replied very gently, only to arm myself with knowledge enough to help you, if ever you freely ask my help. But why should I need help? He continued his dreamy monologue. You couldn't have come in to see protégés, humble friends, or that sort of thing, or you'd have gone through into the parlour. And you couldn't have come in because you were ill, or you'd have spoken to the woman of the place, who's obviously respectable. Besides, you don't look ill in that way, but only unhappy. This street is the only original long lane that has no turning. And the houses on both sides are shut up. I could only suppose that you had seen somebody coming whom you didn't want to meet, and found the public house was the only shelter in this wilderness of stone. I don't think I went beyond the license of a stranger, in glancing at the only man who passed immediately after, and as I thought he looked like the wrong sort, and you looked like the right sort, I held myself ready to help, if he annoyed you, that is all. As for my friend, he'll be back soon, and he certainly can't find out anything by stumping down a road like this. 
I didn't think he could. Then why did you send him out? she cried, leaning forward with yet warmer curiosity. She had the proud, impetuous face that goes with reddish colouring and a Roman nose, as it did in Marie Antoinette. He looked at her steadily for the first time and said, Because I hoped you would speak to me. She looked back at him for some time with a heated face, in which there hung a red shadow of anger. Then, despite her anxieties, humour broke out of her eyes and the corners of her mouth, and she answered almost grimly, "'Well, if you are so keen on my conversation, perhaps you'll answer my question.' After a pause, she added, "'I had the honour to ask you why you thought the man's nose was false.' "'The wax always spots like that, just a little in this weather,' answered Father Brown with entire simplicity. "'But it's such a crooked nose,' remonstrated the red-haired girl. The priest smiled in his turn. "'I don't say it's the sort of nose one would wear out of mere foppery,' he admitted. "'This man, I think, wears it because his real nose is so much nicer.' "'But why?' she insisted. "'What is the nursery rhyme?' observed Brown absent-mindedly. "'There was a crooked man, and he went a crooked mile. "'That man, I fancy, has gone a very crooked road by following his nose.' "'Why? What's he done?' she demanded rather shakily. "'I don't want to force your confidence by a hair,' said Father Brown very quietly. "'But I think you could tell me more about that than I can tell you.' The girl sprang to her feet and stood quietly, but with clenched hands like one about to stride away. Then her hands loosened slowly, and she sat down again. "'You are more of a mystery than all the others,' she said desperately. "'But I feel there might be a heart in your mystery.' "'What we all dread most,' said the priest, in a low voice, "'is a maze with no centre. "'That is why atheism is only a nightmare.' "'I will tell you everything,' said the red-haired girl doggedly, "'except why I am telling you, and that I don't know.' "'She picked at the darned tablecloth and went on. "'You look as if you knew what isn't snobbery as well as what is, "'and when I say that ours is a good family, "'you'll understand it is a necessary part of the story.' Indeed, my chief danger is in my brother's high and dry notions, noblesse oblige and all that. Well, my name is Christabel Carstairs, and my father was that Colonel Carstairs you've probably heard of, who made the famous Carstairs collection of Roman coins. I could never describe my father to you. The nearest I can say is that he was very like a Roman coin himself. He was as handsome and as genuine and as valuable and as metallic and as out of date. He was prouder of his collection than of his coat of arms. Nobody could say more than that. His extraordinary character came out most in his will. He had two sons and one daughter. He quarrelled with one son, my brother Giles, and sent him to Australia on a small allowance. He then made a will leaving the Carstairs collection, actually with a yet smaller allowance to my brother Arthur. He meant it as a reward, as the highest honour he could offer, in the acknowledgment of Arthur's loyalty and rectitude, and the distinctions he had already gained in mathematics and economics at Cambridge. He left me practically all his pretty large fortune, and I'm sure he meant it in contempt. Arthur, you may say, might well complain of this, but Arthur is my father over again. Though he had some differences with my father in early youth, 
No sooner had he taken over the collection than he became like a pagan priest dedicated to a temple. He mixed up these Roman halfpence with the honour of the Carstairs family in the same stiff, idolatrous way as his father before him. He acted as if Roman money must be guarded by all the Roman virtues. He took no pleasures, he spent nothing on himself, he lived for the collection. Often he would not trouble to dress for his simple meals, but pattered about among the corded brown paper parcels, which no one else was allowed to touch, in an old brown dressing-gown. With its rope and tassel and his pale, thin, refined face, it made him look like an old ascetic monk. Every now and then, though, he would appear dressed like a decidedly fashionable gentleman, but that was only when he went up to the London sales, or shops, to make an addition to the Carstairs collection. Now, if you've known any young people, you won't be shocked if I say that I got into rather a low frame of mind with all this, the frame of mind in which one begins to say that the ancient Romans were all very well in their way. I'm not like my brother Arthur. I can't help enjoying enjoyment. I got a lot of romance and rubbish when I got my red hair from the other side of the family. Poor Giles was the same, and I think the atmosphere of coins might count in excuse for him though he really did wrong and nearly went to prison. But he didn't behave any worse than I did, as you shall hear. I come now to the silly part of the story. I think a man as clever as you can guess the sort of thing that would begin to relieve the monotony for an unruly girl of seventeen placed in such a position. But I am so rattled with more dreadful things that I can hardly read my own feeling, and don't know whether I despise it now as a flirtation or bear it as a broken heart. We lived then at a little seaside watering-place in South Wales, and a retired sea-captain living a few doors off had a son about five years older than myself, who had been a friend of Giles before he went to the colonies. His name does not affect my tale, but I tell you it was Philip Hawker, because I am telling you everything. We used to go shrimping together, and said and thought we were in love with each other, at least he certainly said he was, and I certainly thought I was. If I tell you he had bronzed curly hair and a falconish sort of face, bronzed by the sea also, it's not for his sake, I assure you, but for the story, for it was the cause of a very curious coincidence. One summer afternoon, when I had promised to go shrimping along the sands with Philip, I was waiting rather impatiently in the front drawing-room, watching Arthur handle some packets of coins he had just purchased, and slowly shunt them one or two at a time into his own dark study and museum, which was at the back of the house. As soon as I heard the heavy door close on him finally, I made a bolt for my shrimping net and tamashanta, and was just going to slip out, when I saw that my brother had left behind him one coin that lay gleaming on the long bench by the window. It was a bronze coin, and the colour, combined with the exact curve of the Roman nose and something in the very lift of the long, wiry neck, made the head of Caesar on it the almost precise portrait of Philip Hawker. Then I suddenly remembered Giles telling Philip of a coin that was like him, and Philip wishing he had it. Perhaps you can fancy the wild, foolish thoughts with which my head went round. I felt as if I had had a gift from the fairies. It seemed to me that if I could only run away with this and give it to Philip like a wild sort of wedding ring, it would be a bond between us for ever. I felt a thousand such things at once. 
Then they yawned under me like the pit, the enormous, awful notion of what I was doing. Above all, the unbearable thought, which was like touching hot iron, of what Arthur would think of it, a caster as a thief, and a thief of the caster's treasure. I believe my brother could see me burned like a witch for such a thing. But then the very thought of such fanatical cruelty heightened my old hatred of his dingy old antiquarian fussiness, and my longing for the youth and liberty that called to me from the sea. Outside was strong sunlight with a wind, and a yellow head of some broom or gorse in the garden wrapped against the glass of the window. I thought of that living and growing gold calling to me from all the heaths of the world, and then of that dead, dull gold and bronze and brass of my brothers, growing dustier and dustier as life went by. Nature and the Carstairs collection had come to grips at last. Nature is older than the Carstairs collection. As I ran down the streets to the sea, the coin clenched tight in my fist. I felt all the Roman Empire on my back, as well as the Carstairs pedigree. It was not only the old lion argent that was roaring in my ear, but all the eagles of the Caesars seemed flapping and screaming in pursuit of me. And yet my heart rose higher and higher like a child's kite, until I came over the very loose, dry sand-hills, and to the flat, wet sands, where Philip stood already up to his ankles in the shallow, shining water, some hundred yards out to sea. There was a great red sunset, and the long stretch of low water, hardly rising over the ankle for half a mile, was like a lake of ruby flame. It was not till I had torn off my shoes and stockings and waded out to where he stood, which was well away from the dry land, that I turned and looked around. We were quite alone in a circle of sea-water and wet sand, and I gave him the head of Caesar. At the very instant I had a shock of fancy that a man far away on the sand-hills was looking at me intently. I must have felt immediately after that it was a mere leap of unreasonable nerves, for the man was only a dark dot in the distance, and I could only just see that he was standing quite still and gazing, with his head a little to one side. There was no earthly logical evidence that he was looking at me. He might have been looking at the ship, or the sunset, or the seagulls, or at any of the people who were still strayed here and there on the shore between us. Nevertheless, whatever my start sprang from was prophetic. For as I gazed, he started walking briskly in a bee-line towards us across the wide, wet sands. As he drew nearer and nearer, I saw that he was dark and bearded, and that his eyes were marked with dark spectacles. He was dressed poorly but respectably in black, from the old black top hat on his head to the solid black boots on his feet. In spite of these, he walked straight into the sea without a flash of hesitation and came on at me with the steadiness of a travelling bullet. I can't tell you the sense of monstrosity and miracle I had when he thus silently burst the barrier between land and water. It was as if he had walked straight off a cliff, and still marched steadily in mid-air. It was as if a house had flown up into the sky, or a man's head had fallen off. He was only wetting his boots, but he seemed to be a demon disregarding a law of nature. If he had hesitated an instant at the water's edge, it would have been nothing. As it was, he seemed to look so much at me alone as not to notice the ocean. Philip was some yards away, 
with his back to me, bending over his net. The stranger came on till he stood within two yards of me, the water washing halfway up his knees. Then he said, with a clearly modulated and rather mincing articulation, Would it discommode you to contribute elsewhere a coin with a somewhat different superscription? With one exception, there was nothing definably abnormal about him. His tinted glasses were not really opaque, but of a blue kind common enough, nor his eyes behind them shifty, but regarded me steadily. His dark beard was not really long or wild, but he looked rather hairy, because the beard began very high up in his face, just under the cheekbones. His complexion was neither sallow nor livid, but on the contrary rather clear and youthful. Yet this gave a pink-and-white waxed look, which somehow, I don't know why, rather increased the horror. The only oddity one could fix was that his nose, which was otherwise of a good shape, was just slightly turned sideways at the tip, as if, when it was soft, it had been tapped on one side with a toy hammer. The thing was hardly a deformity, yet I cannot tell you what a living nightmare it was to me. As he stood there in the sunset-stained water, he affected me as some hellish sea-monster just risen roaring out of a sea like blood. I don't know why a touch on the nose should affect my imagination so much. I think it seemed as if he could move his nose like a finger, and as if he had just that moment moved it. Any little assistance, he continued with the same queer priggish accent, that may obviate the necessity of my communicating with the family. Then it rushed over me that I was being blackmailed for the theft of the bronze piece. And all my merely superstitious fears and doubts were swallowed up in one overpowering practical question. How could he have found out? I'd stolen the thing suddenly and on impulse. I was certainly alone, for I always made sure of being unobserved when I slipped out to see Philip in this way. I had not, to all appearances, been followed in the street, and if I had, they could not X-ray the coin in my closed hand. The man standing on the sand-hills could no more have seen what I gave Philip than shoot a fly in one eye, like the man in the fairy tale. "'Philip!' I cried helplessly. "'Ask this man what he wants.' When Philip lifted his head at last from mending his net, he looked rather red, as if sulky or ashamed but it may have been only the exertion of stooping and the red evening light. I may have only had another of the morbid fancies that seemed to be dancing about me. He merely gruffly said to the man, You clear out of this, and motioning me to follow, set off wading shoreward without paying further attention to him. He stepped onto a stone breakwater that ran out from among the roots of the sandhills, and so struck homeward perhaps thinking our incubus would find it less easy to walk on such rough stones, green and slippery with seaweed, than we who were young and used to it. But my persecutor walked as daintily as he talked, and he still followed me, picking his way and picking his phrases. I heard his delicate, detestable voice appealing to me over my shoulder, until at last, when we had crested the sandhills, Philip's patience, which was by no means so conspicuous on most occasions, seemed to snap. He turned suddenly, saying, "'Go back. I can't talk to you now.' And as the man hovered and opened his mouth, Philip struck him a buffet on it that sent him flying from the top of the tallest sand-hill to the bottom. I saw him crawling out below, covered with sand. This stroke comforted me somehow, though it might well increase my peril, 
but Philip showed none of his usual elation at his own prowess. Though as affectionate as ever, he still seemed cast down. And before I could ask him anything fully, he parted with me at his own gate, with two remarks that struck me as strange. He said that, all things considered, I ought to put the coin back in the collection, but that he himself would keep it for the present. And then he added, quite suddenly and irrelevantly, You know Giles is back from Australia. The door of the tavern opened, and the gigantic shadow of the investigator Flambeau fell across the table. Father Brown presented him to the lady in his own slight, persuasive style of speech, mentioning his knowledge and sympathy in such cases, and, almost without knowing, the girl was soon reiterating her story to two listeners. But Flambeau, as he bowed and sat down, handed the priest a small slip of paper. Brown accepted it with some surprise, and read on it, Cab to Wagga Wagga, 379 Mafeking Avenue, Putney. The girl was going on with her story. I went up the street to my own house with my head in a whirl. It had not begun to clear when I came to the doorstep, on which I found a milk can and the man with the twisted nose. The milk can told me the servants were all out, for, of course, Arthur, browsing about in his brown dressing gown in a brown study, would not hear or answer a bell. Thus there was no one to help me in the house except my brother, whose help must be my ruin. In desperation I thrust two shillings into the horrid thing's hand, and told him to call again in a few days when I had thought it out. He went off sulking, but more sheepishly than I had expected. Perhaps he had been shaken by his fall, and I watched the star of sand splashed on his back receding down the road with a horrid, vindictive pleasure. He turned a corner some six houses down. Then I let myself in, made myself some tea, and tried to think it out. I sat at the drawing-room window, looking on to the garden, which still glowed with the last full evening light. But I was too distracted and dreamy to look at the lawns and flower-pots and flower-beds with any concentration. So I took the shock the more sharply, because I'd seen it so slowly. The man, or monster I'd sent away, was standing quite still in the middle of the garden. Oh, we all read a lot about pale-faced phantoms in the dark, but this was more dreadful than anything of that kind could ever be, because, though he cast a long evening shadow, he still stood in warm sunlight. And because his face was not pale, but had that waxen bloom still upon it that belongs to a barber's dummy, he stood quite still, with his face towards me and I can't tell you how horrid he looked among the tulips and all those tall, gaudy, almost hothouse-looking flowers. It looked as if we'd stuck up a waxwork instead of a statue in the centre of our garden. Yet almost the instant he saw me move in the window, he turned and ran out of the garden by the back gate, which stood open, and by which he had undoubtedly entered. This renewed timidity on his part was so different from the impudence with which he had walked into the sea, that I felt vaguely comforted. I fancied, perhaps, that he feared confronting Arthur more than I knew. Anyhow, I settled down at last and had a quiet dinner alone, for it was against the rules to disturb Arthur when he was rearranging the museum. And my thoughts, a little released, fled to Philip and lost themselves, I suppose. 
Anyhow, I was looking blankly, but rather pleasantly than otherwise, at another window, uncurtained, but by this time black as slate with the final nightfall. It seemed to me that something like a snail was on the outside of the window-pane. But when I stared harder, it was more like a man's thumb pressed on the pane. It had that curled look that a thumb has. With my fear and courage reawakened together, I rushed at the window, and then recoiled with a strangled scream that any man but Arthur must have heard. For it was not a thumb, any more than it was a snail. It was the tip of a crooked nose crushed against the glass. It looked white with the pressure, and the staring face and eyes behind it were at first invisible, and afterwards grey like a ghost. I slammed the shutters together somehow, rushed up to my room, and locked myself in. But even as I passed, I could swear I saw a second black window with something on it that was like a snail. It might be best to go to Arthur after all. If the thing was crawling close all around the house like a cat, it might have purposes worse even than blackmail. My brother might cast me out and curse me forever, but he was a gentleman and would defend me on the spot. After ten minutes' curious thinking, I went down, knocked on the door, and then went in to see the last and worst sight. My brother's chair was empty, and he was obviously out, but the man with the crooked nose was sitting waiting for his return, with his hat still insolently on his head, and actually reading one of my brother's books under my brother's lamp. His face was composed and occupied, but his nose tip still had the air of being the most mobile part of his face, as if it had just turned from left to right like an elephant's proboscis. I had thought him poisonous enough while he was pursuing and watching me, but I think his unconsciousness of my presence was more frightful still. I think I screamed loud and long, but that doesn't matter. What I did next does matter. I gave him all the money I had, including a good deal in paper, which, though it was mine, I dare say I had no right to touch. He went off at last, with hateful, tactful regrets all in long words, and I sat down feeling ruined in every sense. And yet I was saved that very night by a pure accident. Arthur had gone off suddenly to London, as he so often did, for bargains, and returned late but radiant, having nearly secured a treasure that was an added splendour even to the family collection. He was so resplendent that I was almost emboldened to confess the abstraction of the lesser gem. But he bore down all other topics with his overpowering projects. Because the bargain might still misfire at any moment, he insisted on my packing at once and going up with him to lodgings he had already taken in Fulham, to be near the curio shop in question. Thus, in spite of myself, I fled from my foe almost in the dead of night, but from Philip also. My brother was often at the South Kensington Museum, and, in order to make some sort of secondary life for myself, I paid for a few lessons at the art schools. I was coming back from them this evening, when I saw the abomination of desolation walking alive down the long straight street, and the rest is as this gentleman has said. I've got only one thing to say. I don't deserve to be helped, and I don't question or complain of my punishment. It is just. It ought to have happened. But I still question, with bursting brains, how it can have happened. Am I punished by miracle? Or well, how can anyone but Philip and myself know I gave him a tiny coin in the middle of the sea? 
"'It is an extraordinary problem,' admitted Flambeau. "'Not so extraordinary as the answer,' remarked Father Brown, rather gloomily. "'Miss Carstairs, will you be at home if we call at your Fulham place in an hour and a half hence?' The girl looked at him, and then rose and put her gloves on. "'Yes,' she said, "'I'll be there,' and almost instantly left the place. That night the detective and the priest were still talking of the matter as they drew near the Fulham house, a tenement strangely mean even for the temporary residence of the Carstairs family. "'Of course the superficial, on reflection,' said Flambeau, "'would think first of this Australian brother who's been in trouble before, "'who's come back so suddenly, and who's just the man to have shabby confederates. "'But I can't see how he can come into the thing by any process of thought unless—' "'Well?' asked his companion patiently. "'Flambeau lowered his voice. "'Unless the girl's lover comes in, too, and he would be the blacker villain. "'The Australian chap did know that Hawker wanted the coin.' but I can't see how on earth he could know that Hawker had got it, unless Hawker signalled to him or his representative across the shore. "'That's true,' assented the priest with respect. "'Have you noted another thing?' went on Flambeau eagerly. "'This Hawker hears his love insulted, but doesn't strike till he's got to the soft sandhills, where he can be victor in a mere sham fight. If he'd struck amid rocks and sea, he might have hurt his ally.' "'That's true again,' said Father Brown, nodding. "'And now, take it from the start. "'It lies between few people, but at least three. "'You want one person for suicide, two people for murder, "'but at least three people for blackmail.' "'Why?' asked the priest softly. "'Well, obviously,' cried his friend, "'there must be one to be exposed, one to threaten exposure, "'and one at least whom exposure would horrify.' "'After a long, ruminant pause, the priest said, you miss a logical step. Three persons are needed as ideas, only two are needed as agents. What can you mean? asked the other. Why shouldn't a blackmailer, asked Brown in a low voice, threaten his victim with himself? Suppose a wife became a rigid teetotaler in order to frighten her husband into concealing his pub frequenting, and then wrote him blackmailing letters in another hand threatening to tell his wife. Why shouldn't it work? Suppose a father forbade a son to gamble, and then, following him in a good disguise, threatened the boy with his own sham paternal strictness. Suppose. But here we are, my friend. My God, cried Flambeau, you don't mean— An active figure ran down the steps of the house, and showed under the golden lamplight the unmistakable head that resembled the Roman coin. Miss Carstairs, said Hawker without ceremony, wouldn't go in till you came. "'Well,' observed Brown confidently, "'don't you think it's the best thing she can do to stop outside, "'with you to look after her? "'You see, I rather guess you've guessed it all yourself.' "'Yes,' said the young man, in an undertone. "'I guessed on the sands, and now I know. "'That's why I let him fall soft.' "'Taking a latch-key from the girl and a coin from Hawker, "'Flambeau let himself and his friend into the empty house "'and passed into the outer parlour. It was empty of all occupants but one. The man whom Father Brown had seen past the tavern was standing against the wall as if at bay. Unchanged, save that he had taken off his black coat and was wearing a brown dressing-gown. "'We have come,' said Father Brown politely, "'to give back this coin to its owner. 
and he handed it to the man with the nose. Flambeau's eyes rolled. Is this man a coin collector? he asked. This man is Mr. Arthur Carstairs, said the priest positively, and he is a coin collector of a somewhat singular kind. The man changed colour so horribly that the crooked nose stood out on his face like a separate and comic thing. He spoke, nevertheless, with a sort of despairing dignity. "'You shall see, then,' he said, "'that I have not lost all the family's qualities,' and he turned suddenly and strode into an inner room, slamming the door. "'Stop him!' shouted Father Brown, bounding and half-falling over a chair. And, after a wrench or two, Flambeau had the door open. But it was too late. In dead silence, Flambeau strode across and telephoned for a doctor and police. An empty medicine bottle lay on the floor. Across the table, the body of the man in the brown dressing-gown lay amid his burst and gaping brown paper parcels, out of which poured and rolled, not Roman, but very modern, English coins. The priest held up the bronze head of Caesar. This, he said, was all that was left of the Carstairs collection. After a silence, he went on with more than common gentleness. It was a cruel will that his father made, and you see he did resent it a little. He hated the Roman money he had, and grew fonder of the real money denied him. He not only sold the collection bit by bit, but sank bit by bit to the basest ways of making money, even to blackmailing his own family in disguise. He blackmailed his brother from Australia for his little forgotten crime. That is why he took the cab to Wagga Wagga in Putney. He blackmailed his sister for the theft he alone could have noticed. And that, by the way, is why she had that supernatural guess when he was away on the sand dunes. Mere figure and gait, however distant, are more likely to remind us of somebody than a well-made-up face quite close. There was another silence. Well, growled the detective, and so this great numismatist and coin collector was nothing but a vulgar miser. "'Is there so great a difference?' asked Father Brown, in the same strange, indulgent tone. "'What is there wrong about a miser that is not often as wrong about a collector? "'What is wrong, except thou shalt not make to thyself any graven image, "'thou shalt not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I—' "'But we must go and see how the poor young couple are getting on. "'I think,' said Flambeau, "'that in spite of everything they are probably getting on very well.'" End of chapter What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.